As the war in Ukraine heads into its second year, we hear from the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Diplomacy is still on the table. Diplomacy is always the best alternative to conflict. For Saturday, February 25th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. We hear from one of the attorneys general suing the FDA over restrictions on a key abortion pill. In a post-Dobbs world, those restrictions are totally unnecessary and now really impacting women across my state. Plus, after new sentences for two high-profile abusers are handed down, a pioneer in helping survivors explains why that's not enough. It's the support and the vindication from the larger community that matters the most. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The European Union has approved its 10th round of sanctions on Moscow for its war in Ukraine. From Brussels, Terry Schultz reports that for the first time, entities linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Council are included because they are believed to be supplying weapons to Russia. The European Commission, the EU's executive arm, says it's turning up the pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin for what it calls his brutal war, viciously targeting civilians and critical infrastructure in Ukraine. The measures will block some 11 billion euros worth of industrial goods from being exported to Russia, items such as spare parts for trucks, jet engines, antennas and cranes, which the EU hopes will degrade Moscow's military capabilities. It will place visa bans and asset freezes on more than 120 Russian individuals and entities, including army commanders politicians, and those believed to be responsible for propaganda and for the forced deportation of thousands of Ukrainian children. Seven Iranian entities are included for supplying drones to Russian forces. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. First Lady Jill Biden is nearing the end of a five-day trip to two African countries, Namibia and Kenya, where she is today to highlight food insecurity in the Horn of Africa. That region is experiencing its worst drought in decades, and Russia's war in Ukraine is slowing humanitarian aid. From Nairobi, Michael Koloki has more. Accompanied by Rachel Ruto, wife of Kenya's President William Ruto, Jill Biden visited a women's economic empowerment project here in the capital city, Nairobi. On Friday, Biden addressed a group which included women from government departments and civil society groups. She emphasized that women have an important role to play in society. During her trip, the First Lady is expected to draw attention to the food security crisis in the Horn of Africa, which is currently experiencing one of the worst droughts in decades. Her trip comes ahead of expected visits to the region later this year by senior U.S. administration officials. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. A powerful winter storm is hitting California with heavy snow, strong winds, and blizzard conditions that have led to road closures and more than 100,000 customers without power. Victor Gautier is with the California Department of Transportation. It says people need to take it easy on the roads this weekend. This is very rare for us in the Bay Area to receive such beautiful snow, but we have to be mindful and be safe when we're out there on the roadways. So just pay attention to the road, pay attention to the signs, and use caution. And snow covered the ground in the hills above Napa Valley. Heavy snow is forecast for the Sierra Nevada and Cascades. In San Francisco, temperatures plunged last night to the 20s, breaking a 132-year-old record for the city's lowest recorded temperatures. 
Blizzard warnings are up in south-central California, too. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. As temperatures drop to levels like we've seen lately, emergencies linked to unvented sources of heat increase. Turning on a gas stove, using a gas-fired lantern, or lighting a fire beneath a clogged chimney can put you at risk for carbon monoxide poisoning. Dr. Paul Graham is a medical toxicologist at the UMass Chan School of Medicine. The true danger of carbon monoxide is that it's completely invisible, it's odorless, it's tasteless, and it doesn't irritate you. So there's really no way to detect it without a carbon monoxide detector. Graham says symptoms may be subtle at first, a headache or fatigue, and progress to chest pain, confusion, and a loss of consciousness. Brookline police are on alert today in response to a National Day of Hate campaign from an Iowa anti-Semitic group. They've increased patrols near synagogues and other religious institutions. Brookline's Deputy Superintendent Paul Campbell put out a video on social media. We're in communication with the members of the Jewish community, uh, the Jewish institutions, um, making them aware and letting them know that we will be out. We're also in communication with uh, regional law enforcement partners to learn if there's any uh, intelligence that they may have. Brookline police have not detected any specific threats. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will be in Los Angeles tonight for the NAACP's Image Awards. The ceremony grants awards to people of color for performances in the arts. The Hulu documentary The Hair Tales, which features Presley and her hair loss struggles, has been nominated for an award. And a 48-year-old man died early today after an exchange of gunfire with police near the MGM Casino in Springfield. Authorities say shots were fired during a pursuit. The Hampton County DA's office says there were reports of the man behaving aggressively and possibly carrying a gun at the casino. Our forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low near 20, a chance of snow and rain tomorrow, low 40s, sunshine on Monday, mid-30s, and we're watching for 2 to 4 inches of snow Monday night, mostly rain on Tuesday. 19 degrees, cloudy in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. It's been a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we're going to start by taking a look at how one of the world's most important diplomatic organizations has responded. I'm talking about the United Nations. As a body, the UN quickly and strongly condemned Russia for the invasion, removed the country from the UN Human Rights Council, and directed billions of dollars in aid for Ukrainian refugees. But as the conflict grinds on, it raises the question of what more, if anything, multilateral groups like the UN can do do to bring peace. We called the U.S. representative to the U.N. to hear more about this. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is a veteran diplomat and is among those who advise President Biden on key diplomatic issues. Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Michelle. I'm delighted to be with you. Can I just start by asking your kind of top-line reflections as we acknowledge a year of this war? Is there something in particular that's been on your mind these past few days? You know, it's been a year, and uh, it's been an incredibly challenging year, but it's also been a year where we have succeeded in keeping the world united in support of Ukraine, uh, united in its condemnation of Russia, 
We know that when Putin started this war last year, uh, his intent was to spend two weeks and bring the Ukrainians to their knees. And he, he was wrong. Their commitment to fight for their independence has not at all uh, waned a single inch. And they've continued to fight for their territory, to fight for their people, to fight for democracy. So your colleague, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, spoke to the U.N. Security Council on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. And I should say all-out war because, of course, there were previous incursions into Ukrainian territory. But anyway, he said, quote, council members should not be fooled by calls for a temporary or unconditional ceasefire. Russia will use any pause in fighting to consolidate control over the territory it's illegally seized and replenish its forces for further attacks. And he went on to say, and members of this council should not fall into the false equivalency of calling on both sides to stop fighting. To whom was he directing those remarks? I think he was directing it to the council. He was directing it to the broader membership of the UN. There is no equivalency between what Russia is doing and what uh, Ukraine is doing. Russia is an aggressor. Ukraine is defending its right to exist, its right to survive. And so in calling for both sides as if somehow they are equal, and we heard uh, many statements uh, along those lines in the council, really ignores the fact that Ukraine is is defending itself. It's the aggrieved here. Hmm. Given given all that, given everything that you've talked about so far, given the brutality of this, given the viciousness of this, given the attacks on civilians, um, and given what the Secretary of State said that, you know, don't be fooled by calls for a pause or things of that sort. I mean, how, where, where does that, is there still a role for diplomacy here? There's absolutely a role for diplomacy. And we started with diplomacy at the beginning of this, and Russia chose war over diplomacy. But diplomacy is still on the table. Diplomacy is always the best alternative to to conflict. But Russia has to stop its brutal attacks on the Ukrainian people. Uh, But if Russia ended this war tomorrow and chose to go to the negotiating table, the Ukrainians would be there with them. And of course, one of the most difficult situations going on for some time now, but the West Bank, you know, this, what seems to be a real sort of dramatic escalation in violence on the West Bank. And, you know, the Secretary of State was recently in Israel meeting with people there. And what is your sense here? Is there something that the UN could be doing to bring tensions down? Yeah, as you know, and the secretary said that we're concerned about the levels of violence in in Israel and the West Bank, and we've called on both sides to uh, desist from taking actions that will inflame the tensions, inflame the violence, and move us away from finding a peaceful path that will allow both Palestinians and Israelis to live safely and, and securely. But yes, there is a role for the UN, both in terms of uh, supporting efforts to find the peaceful path. As you know, in the Security Council, we were able to support a very strong presidential statement that we issued on Monday, and it demonstrated that the Security Council can work unanimously and collectively on uh, these difficult issues. It showed diplomacy at work. And we think it signified to all parties how seriously the council takes what is happening. 
up. So yes, there's more that the UN can do, but it really is going to be uh, up to the two parties to find a path uh, forward where they can diminish the tensions between them, stop the escalation, and look for uh, a way forward so that both Palestinians and Israelis can live in peace and, and security. Before we let you go, Ambassador, we're two years into the administration. Um, yeah. Other members of the cabinet are moving on. Um, do you plan to stay? <laughs> well, look, I just uh, commemorated my two-year anniversary here. I, I was sworn into this job on February 24th, uh, 2021. And it's been two extraordinary years. Uh, I feel as if I jumped on a roller coaster or a treadmill and I've not come off. <laughs> I serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, and I think that uh, at this point, uh, we're having tremendous success in doing what the president sent me here to do. And that was to bring U.S. leadership back uh, to the multilateral system. And I'll continue to do it as long as I'm successful at it and as long as the president has confidence in me. That was Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She is the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield, thank you so much for joining us. Michelle, thank you so much. Nigerians have been voting today in what many see as the most competitive election in decades. And in Africa's most populous country, many voters say they're heading to the polls with a sense of urgency to set the country on a better path after eight tough years. But voting in some parts of Nigeria has not been smooth, and many people have had to brave long lines and even threats in order to cast their ballots. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu visited a polling station in Lagos and we want to warn listeners, you're going to hear gunshots in this piece. Polls are just opening in Nigeria. It's just gone nine in the morning. I'm at a usually gridlocked, busy road that has given way to football games, pedestrian cyclists, movements restricted in Nigeria on election day, except for party agents and security. Um, so it makes the day actually quite preciously serene and, and peaceful. One of the boys playing football or soccer whispered to me that he's voting for the APC when the game is over because he feels his candidate has the best track record. I've been talking to people, a lot of young people, some of whom are voting for the very first time. My name is Gloria Umor. For this election, I want to come out. I was about saying that, OK, I'm not going to come. I said, no, I must come. I must come and come and vote them out. That is why I am here today. And my vote is going to count by the special grace of God. Because the suffering is too much. Extremely too much. We cannot endure it any longer. You go to the market, things are expensive. We cannot buy anything. I have a shop. What I used to buy before in my shop is times five of when I got that shop. So I'm tired. That is why I had to come out to vote. I've been talking to polling agents for the different parties. They said that the atmosphere here in a more affluent part of Lagos in Ikoyi is calmer. And they also feel a sense of confidence in the electoral process. And they feel that the vote will reflect what people actually have chosen. Patience! Patience, please! So we're at a polling unit in Akirili, in Suriliri. A truckload of police just arrived, reinforcing the security that are here. People are spilling over with frustration here. They've been waiting for hours and hours. Some people arrived here at 7 a.m. It's now 2 in the afternoon, and they haven't been able to cast their ballot. My name is Amaka. Um, I'm a medical lab scientist. For a long period of time, majority of Nigerians have been suffering under leaders that probably we had uh, elected or not. But now we want to cause the change that we want. 
So we we are here to just exercise that right. It's our right to vote and be voted for. Amaka eventually got to the front of the queue and was just about to cast her vote when gunmen suddenly arrived and scattered everything. We, um, we've just kind of gathered ourselves. We had to run. Some boys came with guns. They started shooting. Enough is enough in this country. Enough is enough. Where are the soldiers? Where are them guys? Where are the soldiers? We've just had to run from gunshots. Yes. You've been waiting to vote since 8 in the morning. I know. They've been, I think they've taken all of the ballot boxes. So I just, I just have to go. I can't stay here again. Where are the security? This has never happened. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised. The ballot box was taken in the attack and election material was damaged. It wasn't exactly clear who the gunmen were, but it was clear they wanted to disrupt the vote and at this polling station. But even as I left, some people dusted themselves off and told me they were waiting to see if voting would restart, still determined to cast their vote. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. On tomorrow's program, the Biden administration has proposed a new rule that will make it harder to claim asylum in the U.S. It will presume that migrants are ineligible for asylum if they cross illegally and don't ask for protection in countries they pass through. We'll hear from Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat who represents parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. He's been a critic of how Republicans and members of his own party have dealt with immigration. He'll share his thoughts on the proposed rule and what the president needs to do to decrease the record number of migrants arriving at the southern U.S. border. And we hope you'll join us for that conversation. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the debate over U.S. history in schools in Florida, plus a celebrated poet makes the case for taking joy seriously. At 7 on the TED Radio Hour, the surprising strength of all things minuscule and fleeting. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com. Check back for the news with WBUR again tonight. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. We are always there when you need us. Cloudy skies tonight, a low near 20, a slight chance of snow and rain tomorrow, low 40s. 19 degrees in Boston at 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilston at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Now through March 17th, amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Portugal, protesters marched in Lisbon today, the latest in a series of protests in recent weeks by government workers, immigrants, and others unhappy with the ruling government. They are demanding the restoration of credit for years of service work, something previous governments reduced to trim spending. The European Union adopted another package of sanctions against Russia today because of its full-scale invasion of Ukraine one year ago. And the Food and Drug Administration is authorizing the first over-the-counter at-home test to detect both 
COVID-19 and the flu. Officials say it will be available without a prescription and can provide results from self-collected nasal swab samples in roughly 30 minutes. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash afterthefact and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Abortion pills are used now in more than half of all abortions in the U.S., and the most common way is with a combination of two drugs. One of them is mifepristone, which was approved more than 20 years ago by the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA. But a group of Democratic attorneys general say the FDA is, quote, singling out mifepristone for a unique set of restrictions, and they are now suing. One of those attorneys general is Bob Ferguson of Washington State, and he's on the line with us now to tell us more. Mr. Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Why this lawsuit and why now? I mean, it comes, I think many people will will realize that this comes just as a Texas judge is expected to issue an order barring the same drug, mifepristone, which would have taken it off the market altogether. So is the timing aimed at forestalling that or addressing that? Well, I guess what I would say is that ever since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in a radical decision that took away constitutional rights enjoyed by millions of Americans, you know, my team has looked for ways in which we can enhance reproductive options for the people of my state. And it became clear to us in that work that we've been doing that this medication, which as you noted, is the most common way in which women have abortions, was being limited in terms of its access by the FDA in a way that we thought was entirely unreasonable and not medically necessary. So the FDA has already lifted a lot of the restrictions on mifepristone. Mm -hmm. You no longer have to be in person to get the abortion pill, that pharmacies can dispense it. They don't have to get some special certification. What are the additional requirements do you think are overly burdensome at this point? Yeah, that's an important point. And so just to put this in context for your listeners, the FDA has approved over 20,000 medications. Only about 60, 60 have these extra restrictions on them. And these are inherently dangerous drugs like fentanyl. So this medication for abortion is one of only 60 that have these burdensome implications. To give you an example, pharmacies must be specially certified in order to provide this medication. We filed this lawsuit in Eastern Washington as an example, Washington State University. The pharmacy there on campus is not certified to provide this medication because it's a hassle for them. It's administratively difficult. Why are we putting these pharmacies through this burdensome process for a medication that is perfectly safe and literally safer than Tylenol? It makes no sense. It makes no medical sense. We think it's unlawful. Those restrictions should be removed. Is it really the same as Tylenol, though? I mean, in the sense that there can be side effects. I'm just interested in what your evidence is that these requirements that people present themselves in person, that they have 
the, I guess, the training to advise people on how to use this medication is unwarranted at this point. That is absolutely part of our case is that study after study shows, demonstrates that this medication is safe. Obviously, anything you put in your body apparently has some risk. But to be clear, the FDA only has placed limitations on 60 medications out of more than 20,000 that they have approved. There is evidence that this medication is as safe or safer than using Viagra, for example. Viagra does not have these limitations. Why do they have it for a product that women would utilize? But as we noted, these pills are now being used in more than half of all abortions. It would suggest to me that patients are getting access to them. So is it your contention that in a post-Dobbs world, these restrictions are more burdensome than they were before? Mm -hmm. So the answer to that question is no, the unnecessary and unlawful burdens that the FDA is placing on this medication have not increased since the U.S. Supreme Court's radical decision. What has changed, of course, though, is the landscape for Americans seeking a safe abortion and that those options have become limited across the country. Critics of this obviously will argue that these restrictions have a good reason to exist, that the patients need monitoring and that the people who dispense them need to be sufficiently educated to educate patients about how to use them. And what do you say to that? Yeah, what we say is that simply flies in the face of the medical evidence that has accumulated now over decades. And again, the list of the only 60 or so medications, again, only 60 that the FDA places these restrictions, literally includes uh, drugs like fentanyl. That's what we're talking about here as a comparison to mifepristone, which is commonly used across the country and really across the world. And so for whatever reason, the FDA is keeping these unnecessary restrictions in place. But my point of view is, and I'm unwavering on this, in a post-Dobbs world, those restrictions are totally unnecessary and now really impacting women across my state. As I mentioned earlier, I think people who have been watching this story closely note that there is a Texas judge mm -hmm. who is widely expected to issue an order barring the same drug. Is it your aim that both of these cases will end up at the Supreme Court? And if that's the case, if that happens, I mean, this court has, I don't think it's a secret that this court has shown that it is extremely amenable to restrictions on abortion, obviously, since they overturned Roe. So would that be a good thing for people like yourself who advocate access to or who favor a more expansive view of abortion rights? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Texas case because it is extremely important context for what's going on. So in that case, anti-abortion activists have filed a lawsuit in Texas for a very specific judge appointed by Donald Trump, whose anti-choice views are well known and no secret. Uh, we are helping to defend that case along with the federal government, by the way, to protect Mifepristone. But that judge, what the, what the plaintiffs in that case are asking from that very conservative judge is to put a national injunction in place saying that Mifepristone should not be available to anybody in the United States anywhere. And so our view is, while that case is going on, we have filed a case that sort of takes the opposite position, that actually Mifepristone should be expanded in terms of its access. And so I think the context here is literally in the next few days, a judge in Texas could sweep away any availability for Mifepristone. If we are successful in our lawsuit, that'd be a contrary decision, and that would create a conflict between two courts, and eventually that would need to be sorted out. And so your hope is that if both of these cases go to the Supreme Court, that the stated view of the, the now majority that states' rights should prevail here, that at least in Washington state and the other states that 
take a different view of abortion rights than Texas, that that point of view will prevail. Is that the end goal here? I think that's a fair summary of it, actually, Michelle. That's exactly right. In other words, we filed here in Washington state, but my lawsuit were joined by another almost dozen attorneys general in other states across the country. So if we're successful at a minimum in those dozen or so states, access to mifepristone would still be available, even if this judge in Texas enters an opinion that tries to put a national injunction in place preventing people in this country from accessing mifepristone. But on the merits, you still believe that these restrictions are excessive and should be lifted regardless of the Texas case. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Look, uh, Michelle, I've, in my 10 years as attorney general, I have filed about 110 lawsuits against presidential administrations of both Democratic presidents and Republican presidents. I think in those I've lost exactly three cases. And so I don't file a lawsuit against anyone, especially in administration, a president, unless I feel very confident that we are right on the law and that the rights of the people of my state are very much on the line. Bob Ferguson is the Attorney General of Washington State and one of a number of uh, Democratic Attorneys General suing the FDA to expand access to mifepristone, which is the drug that is used to induce abortions. Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. I really enjoyed it. A controversy has erupted about and within the New York Times. This time it involves coverage of trans people, but in particular reports about medical treatments involving children that shift, which is to say affirm, their gender. There was a protest letter signed by a few hundred people, and that included some people who currently work for the New York Times. And that set off waves of arguments inside the newsroom. We often turn to NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick to talk about journalism, so we called him to hear more about this. David, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. So first, the letter. What were the critics objecting to? And was it mainly about the Times' coverage of medical care for youths with gender dysphoria, or did it go beyond that? Right. So this is a a protest letter that's been signed now by hundreds of people, a small number of whom are actively currently New York Times journalists. They said that the sweep of the Times' coverage has shown bias against trans people with a real focus on the question of uh, medical care and treatment for trans youths. And they particularly take objection to the idea that the science isn't fully settled, which comes across in a number of larger pieces that the Times has published in recent months. They argue it is settled, and this is an incredible point of contention. The real nub of it seems to lie in the idea that there's been this extensive attention to the question of medical treatment for youths who are trans and that it's inducing a kind of panic, that it's used to justify new laws or court rulings that are essentially restricting or trying to bar youths from getting that kind of care. And they're saying this is deeply harmful to not only trans youths, but to trans people who feel that they are being, as a result, treated as less than equal Americans by the Times. And so how has the Times responded to that? Well, it's really notable, right? Uh, If you think back to 2020, when the social justice movement welled up, the Times ultimately as a result of pressures inside its own newsroom, fired their editorial page editor over an op-ed published that a number of not only but particularly African-American journalists objected to. This time, the editor-in-chief, Joe Kahn, and the Kathleen Kinsbury, who's the head of the opinion section, said, we haven't shown bias. We've tried to cover trans people in all their complexities, all their nuances, and their humanity, but also look 
carefully at uh, medical and ethical issues that are raised by certain kinds of treatments, whether hormone treatments or others, and how that may affect youths who are not fully grown yet, and that we need to do so unflinchingly, and that we have not shown bias at all. They are not backing down an inch. And that's the response you've heard. And this has kept growing, though. I understand that the union got involved, the union that represents most uh, times journalists, and there were some back and forth about that. So you can just tell us about that. Well, one of the things that the top editor said was this isn't the appropriate way to address this issue. You've got a journalistic issue. If you're inside the Times, come to us. Let's deal with this as journalists and work through these important issues together. The Guild said, look, this is essentially in some ways creating an unwelcome environment for people who may be trans themselves or may be thinking about this, may have people in their families with gender dysphoria. And so that's making an unwelcome workspace. And then you had a number of veteran Times reporters respond to that, say, this is not a role for the union. If we're thinking about our coverage, that's not a workplace issue. We have to be able to talk about these issues directly. A lot of give and take within the newsroom on all sides of this issue, some of which hasn't been expressed as publicly as those letters. So this is about the Times, and it's obvious that the Times has a very big you know, footprint in the public discourse and also is very influential within journalism. So if this was just the workplace issue within the Times, you know, obviously it would be of interest to some people. But there really are larger issues at work here that I, I take it. So, David, can we talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, I think it's in some ways about the Times present and in some ways about how the Times will be looked back on and the role of journalism, right? So... You know, if you think back to how the Times covered gay rights and gay people, it was for decades dismissive, condescending, patronizing or antagonistic, hostile in a way that the Times ultimately had to grapple with a few decades ago and and come to terms with and change the way they approached this. And a number of times journalists said to me they don't want to have to look back on the way the Times has approached this now and think of this as a place that has cultivated a panic or contributed to a society that treats trans people as less than or less consequential than others. And yet the Times still wants to be able to say it's distilling these issues through a journalistic prism and not a political one. They don't want to take such care as a political stance or because of pressure. They want to do so because it's the right thing to do journalistically. Navigating that, I think it's going to be a very fine line for the Times as they see these voices inside and outside the newsroom raised in critique. But can I just ask you about this whole question of what constitutes harm and what role should that question of harm play in determining what and how to cover certain things? And I mean, this isn't just an issue for the Times. The question of harm is an important one. You're hearing people who signed that letter, particularly people who are themselves trans people, say, I'm being negated here because the overwhelming direction of coverage is raising questions about this kind of medical care without having an equal or greater amount of attention being given to what are the repercussions if those youths are not given certain kinds of medical care. By the same token, I think there are a number of senior executives at the Times who are signaling they don't want to be intimidated from looking carefully at issues which are not yet settled, which do have implications, even if the numbers are relatively small. That's NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. David, thanks so much for joining us again. You bet. You're listening to NPR News. Apple is the world's most valuable tech company in large part because of China. Now Apple is reckoning with its dependence on the country. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen examines what's at stake. 
In the late 1990s, Apple was in trouble. Microsoft and IBM were doing laps around the company. It was having a really hard time competing with PCs, which were cheaper and quickly becoming the de facto computer in offices and households. Here's former Apple CEO Steve Jobs recalling this period in a 2010 interview. Well, Apple was about 90 days away from going bankrupt back then in the early days, and it was much worse than I thought. Apple's turnaround had many factors. Steve Jobs, the introduction of products like the iPod, and very importantly, China. The country had a massive low-wage labor force and had developed manufacturing and engineering expertise. In 2001, Apple brokered a partnership with China. The government poured billions of dollars into new infrastructure for Apple, building factories, paving new roads, constructing housing for Apple workers. Kate Whitehead helped oversee Apple's operations in China. I was around when they called up the local city and asked them to build another airport because we needed a larger airport to ship out more goods. That's right. If Apple needed another airport in China, it happened and it happened fast. Doug Guthrie is another former Apple employee who focused on China. He says China set up industrial clusters where little components for Apple products were made and then quickly moved to a final assembly plant run by the company Foxconn. Apple engineers were embedded there to keep an eye on quality control. If you knew how to navigate that market really well, which Tim Cook and Apple did, you could really find the best partner who would make the best component for the cheapest price. And that was sort of the brilliance of the system. But now the brilliance of the system in China has come to represent something else to Apple, a huge risk. As geopolitical tensions rise over issues including spying, the suppression of human rights, and the country's threats against Taiwan, Apple is worried about its footprint in China. Apple declined to comment to NPR, and CEO Tim Cook tends to give vague answers when he's challenged about China's human rights record, like he does here in a 2020 interview with The Atlantic. When I look at China, I see a significant number of users that love Apple product, and I want to serve them. And we believe everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. It's sort of our basic belief as a company. The pressure on Cook really heated up at the height of COVID lockdowns in China. Inside the sprawling industrial campus known as iPhone City, which spreads across two square miles, protesting workers clashed with riot police over stringent lockdown conditions. This was a problem for Apple, but it didn't have a backup plan. That's according to Jeff Fieldhack. He's with the firm CounterPoint Research. Apple lost about a billion dollars a week from devices not being manufactured, shipped, and uh, hitting stores across the globe. Fieldhack says when there are factory disruptions in China, it reverberates, and that's because... Today, we estimate 93% of iPhones are built in China. Apple is trying to set up shop elsewhere. It's now making a small percentage of iPhones in India, and it's making AirPods in Vietnam. But up and leaving China is not going to happen anytime soon. Former Apple operations manager Whitehead says China's extraordinary support of the Silicon Valley giant turned around its fortunes and made it a global success. But she says Apple may have gotten addicted. It was a smart move by the government to encourage this growth, but it became like a little bit like a drug. A drug that Apple is unlikely to kick anytime soon. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the debate over U.S. history in Florida schools. And tune in tomorrow morning at 8 for Weekend Edition. Here's some of what we'll have for you. 
a story about gay and trans gun owners who often gather in the woods of New Hampshire to practice shooting. They say they want to be ready to defend themselves from hate groups. And, of course, the puzzle with Will Shorts. Weekend edition starts at 8 a.m. tomorrow. It runs until 11 a.m. And follow the news this evening with WBUR. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or settling in for the night. 19 degrees in Boston, cloudy out at 539. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting two intimate concerts with Tony-winning Broadway film and TV actress and singer Laura Benanti, March 10th and 11th, theumbrellaarts.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Turkey was hit by another earthquake today. The U.S. Geological Survey puts its magnitude at 5.3. Meanwhile, the death toll from the 7.8 magnitude quake earlier this month is nearing 48,000 in Turkey and neighboring Syria. At the G20 summit in India today, top economic policymakers, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, wrapped up their meeting, but they were unable to agree on a resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And a Russian spacecraft on its way to the International Space Station, will, where it will dock later today. The uncrewed spacecraft will bring two Russian cosmonauts and one NASA astronaut home. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Last week brought news of two sentences in high-profile cases of sexual abuse. A Los Angeles judge gave the disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein 16 more years in prison on top of a 23-year sentence in New York in connection with charges of rape and assault. And in Chicago, a sentence for child pornography means the convicted former music legend R. Kelly will spend an additional year in federal prison on top of the 30 years he's already gotten for racketeering and sex trafficking. So justice served, right? Maybe according to prosecutors, but our next guest says not necessarily for the people who endured the abuse. Dr. Judith Herman is a giant in the field of trauma and recovery. She spent her 50-year career as a psychiatrist working with survivors of violence against women and children, and she says that their vision of justice is often very different from the courts. And she's with us now to tell us more. Dr. Herman, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. I think your findings, based on your practice, based on your research, and based on survey data, will be surprising to many people, you know, because they see the TV news, they see TV shows based on the news, and they see survivors, you know, hugging and fist pumping when one of these convictions actually happens and when sentences are actually announced. But you're saying that that picture that we have of what justice looks like isn't what's really most meaningful to survivors. How did you first come to this insight? Well, 
first of all, I think it's important to realize how rare it is that perpetrators are actually convicted of their crimes. Um, most survivors never report because they're so intimidated or so shamed, and also because they know that they're going to be the ones on trial mm. if they actually go to court. They're going to be shamed, they're going to be blamed, they're going to be treated as though they're the suspects and they are the criminals. And the second thing is, punishment doesn't really do all that much. Hmm. When you ask survivors what they would want, they all say things like, I don't want them punished, but I want them exposed. I want people to know who he is and what he did. And I want people to believe me. And I want people to tell me I didn't do anything wrong. It's the support and the vindication from the larger community that matters the most to survivors. They don't want to be shamed and blamed. They want to be told the shame belongs to the person who did the crime. I found it fascinating. In one of your writings, you said that when you work with survivors, they want acknowledgement and apologies from bystanders even more than they want to hear apologies from the people who violated them. Could you say more about that? Well, I think a lot of people can accept the fact that there are sociopaths in the world who are power mad and do a lot of harm. But what about all those enablers? What about all the people who look the other way? What about all the Hollywood people who knew for years? Uh, it was an open secret what Weinstein was doing. What about the women who led the victims up to his hotel room? knowing perfectly well what was going to happen. That hurts in some ways worse, the fact that the wider community basically took the side of the perpetrator, either by action or inaction. That makes the victim feel completely isolated. For that reason, getting that community support means a whole lot. You know, one of the things you point out is that actually what you've called kind of formal structures of justice offer very little incentive for people to come forward, given all the things that you just talked about. So would that acknowledgement, do having groups like the Me Too movement say, we've experienced this, we see you, we understand what this is like, does that help survivors? Oh, absolutely. That's often the first step in bringing people out of isolation. And what you hear over and over anytime there's a speak out is, I thought I was the only one. When people get feedback from others who have been there, who know what it's like, and they hear, no, you didn't do anything wrong. It's enormous relief. You say that, you know, the kind of the thing that is conventionally considered justice, punishment and monetary damages, isn't what survivors really want. They want truth and repair. What, what does that look like? Well, it starts with public testimony, public acknowledgement. Every survivor I've ever, ever worked with, that's what the first thing they want. They want the facts out there. They want the people who matter to them to believe them. And then after that, some people want apologies from the perpetrator. A lot more people actually want apologies from the enablers hmm. and the people who might have taken action but didn't. 
when the abuse happens within the family, a lot of times survivors will say, well, you know, where was my mom? Hmm. I want her to apologize for looking the other way. Hmm. One survivor who I talked with said, you know, I went from being a straight-A student because she'd been sexually assaulted at a party to flunking out of school. Why didn't anybody say something? Where were my teachers? Didn't anybody notice? Oftentimes, a lot of the healing involves talking with the people who didn't help. You know, it's interesting how you also say that one sort of under-discussed aspect of this is that the victims often really want the perpetrators to get help. Yes. They want rehabilitation. They want treatment. They want, we hardly ever hear this. And I just sort of curious, like, why you think that is? Well, I think particularly when the abuser is not a stranger, and that's most of the cases, they can see that there's a human side to the perpetrator. I I talked to one amazing woman uh, named Winona Ward who grew up in a family where her father was very violent and abusive to his wife and all the kids. And she had a big brother, and he was kind of her pal and her buddy. And then what happened was he didn't abuse her, but he abused the younger sisters and then his nieces. She actually and her younger sisters pressed charges against her brother, and she said, you know, I could see that he was a good little boy, and I loved him, and my father destroyed him. And he was in prison, and she wanted him to get help. She visited him in prison, and after his father died, he finally admitted what he did and got into treatment. And she was so happy for him that he was finally free enough to admit what he did, and she really wanted him rehabilitated. Dr. Judith Herman is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's the author of the noted work, Trauma and Recovery, a new book, Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice, will be out next month. Dr. Herman, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And finally today, when you're a part of something that feels deeply flawed, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a church, you basically have two choices. You can walk away or you can stay and work to try to fix it. Depending on the situation, sometimes quitting can be just as hard as staying to try and make change. NPR's Rachel Martin is going to tell us about someone who chose to stay. James Jones contains multitudes. I'm a podcaster, a voice actor. In a previous life, I was also a musician and a dancer. He's also a student at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And most importantly to him... I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, been a member of that church my entire life. He and his mom and four sisters went to church every Sunday. He did all the youth groups, and he abided by all the social rules of the faith. He paid his tithing, no sex before marriage, stayed away from caffeine and alcohol. I tick off nearly every box of Mormon respectability. I know the scriptures very well. I know our history very well. I feel like I've earned the right to respectfully but firmly disagree with some things. And James respectfully but firmly disagrees with how the church has dealt with race. It started early. When he was around 12 years old, James was ordained into what is called the priesthood, which is what all Mormon boys and men deemed worthy get to be part of. It allows them to perform sacred rituals. But it wasn't always this way. James is black. 
And until 1978, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints prohibited black people from participating in the priesthood. I knew even as a 12-year-old boy that something's not right here. Like there is no way, no way whatsoever that we were actually inferior and that's why we did not get the priesthood. That, that made no sense to me. But that was like the beginning of not just my questioning around race, but my questioning around church leadership in general. There's a you know, famous quote by Brigham Young from February of 1852, where he literally called black people the seed of Cain. And that's why they are not entitled to the priesthood or all the full blessings of the gospel. Now, if you ask the church about that now, they will repudiate uh, that particular statement and all other explanations that were given prior to 1978. These days, the LDS church has no racial restrictions, and church leaders have repeatedly condemned racism generally, although they've never acknowledged its past racist policies as a mistake. The closest they get is this description on the church website of the day in 1978 when a small group of chosen leaders had what they describe as a divine revelation. According to the website, this, quote, new light and knowledge erased previously limited understanding. But that opens up a whole nother can of worms that nobody else wants to open. How do you make peace with the fact that we, for 126 or so years, uh, had discriminatory policy that was based on false doctrine that came from a leader of the church? James can't make peace with it, but he can try to make a difference in how church members understand the experience of Black people. Early in 2021, the publishing company for the LDS Church, it's called Deseret Book, reached out to James after hearing him speak at a conference. They asked if he would be interested in turning his message on racism into a digital course. In this class, I'll help you have more confidence in your conversations about race. A better framework. All I knew I wanted to do was be heavy on scriptures. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Matthew 22. Let every man esteem his brother as himself, Doctrine and Covenants 38. Personal stories. If I get followed in a store, I'm processing that experience through previous similar ones that are almost routine for many black people in America. General authority quotes. When President Oaks focused his remarks on racism in his BYU devotional, he specifically mentioned police brutality against black folks. I wanted to do the best I could to speak the language of, you know, my fellow Latter-day Saints. I wanted to make it so that it was accessible to them and uh, not so scary. Like, I think anti-racism is already inherent in uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even Mormon theology has things to offer that conversation. In short, racism is a sin, and fighting it is a commandment. James was hopeful that he could get his fellow saints to start to recognize their own blind spots on race. He developed this whole online anti-racism course with the help of the church's publishing company. And then something happened that complicated that relationship. James publicly called out a top church leader for criticizing queer students at Brigham Young University. I said a lot of things that, you know, I can definitely admit were harsh words. So if you're a Mormon or a member of a number of other faith traditions, what is the absolute worst thing you could say about something? That it's satanic, right? James went on Facebook and called this speech by this Mormon leader satanic something the church would obviously take issue with, to put it lightly. I would venture to guess that you knew that that word, that descriptor, was going to feel different to people. It was going to strike people in a certain way. I felt like I needed to be clear in a way that juxtaposed a person who is supposedly tied to the divine engaging in behavior that is not in line at all with that uh, call. So I deliberately did pick that word to make that juxtaposition, yes. 
The LDS Publishing Company delayed releasing the anti-racism course and then decided against publishing it altogether. We confirmed with them that they cut ties with James because of his incendiary Facebook post. Good afternoon. Really is a privilege to speak to y'all today. James is still getting his message out any way he can. His anti-racism classes for Latter-day Saints are still accessible on his own website. And whenever he's invited, he talks directly to LDS groups, including his own congregation in New York. We come to church to learn and to be edified by the Spirit. What still compels you to stay in the church when you have been disappointed in this way? when you think about the history of the church, when you think about the alternatives that exist now. I mean, mm -hmm. there are all kinds of very diverse spiritual communities that exist that are not tethered to mainstream Christianity anymore. Why do you stay? Um, I believe in the church's fundamental truth claims, like about the Book of Mormon, about the restoration of priesthood authority and all that other stuff. I, I believe that stuff. And uh, subsequently, because I believe that stuff, that demands certain action on my part to do what I can to fix things within the church. Now, there may come a day where I'm too tired or too burnt out to do that. And I will, you know, if I need to leave or step away from the church, I will most definitely do that. I'm like that option is not off the table. Um, but at this point, so long as I still have the stamina that I do, I feel like I have an obligation to stay. I feel called to stay and to do what I can to make it so people like me or people that love different than me are able to exist in this space. I bear my testimony that this is the Jesus that we worship, a Jesus far more concerned with how we treat others than what we believe. And Jesus Mormon theology is actually far more expansive and inclusive and affirming and even queer than a lot of Mormons will give it credit for, but they're never going to know that so long as the same predominantly straight white dudes born in the Jim Crow era are the primary ones teaching it. Like that's just not going to happen, but I want so badly to see that happen because I believe it can if the right people are teaching. And also I don't think the right people will get into place if people like me just keep leaving. And so for now, James Jones questions, he teaches